All right, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, and the uh, connecting verse is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. We're going to talk about sacred truth. Sacred truth. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, these are the words of God. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the gift of this fellowship and what it is you are doing among us. I ask and pray that our time this evening would be honoring unto you and edifying to your people. As we look to your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. Open our minds and hearts as we open up to your truth. In Christ's name I pray, amen. What is truth? Pilate asked Jesus in John 18, what is truth? There is little doubt that Pilate was shaped by the Greco-Roman culture of the day, one which placed an emphasis on the material and the rational and not the transcendent and the spiritual. Pilate would have most definitely been a product of a dualistic culture. When we read uh, this in the Gospel of John, we're almost stricken with humor. Truth, (laughs) Pilate, you can't handle the truth, to quote a famous movie. Uh, Truth was standing right before his very eyes, and yet he remained unmoved. Jesus had already said several chapters before that he is truth, chapter 14, verse 6 in the Gospel of John. He also said that God's word is truth, chapter 17, verse 17. And for good measure, our Lord also said that one can both know the truth and as a consequence have the truth set one free, chapter 8, verse 32. So truth, especially in the Gospel of John, is is important. And in in fact, for Jesus, it is paramount because he is truth. He is truth incarnate. Everything he says is wisdom, is truth, and sovereignty on display. Furthermore, this dynamic of truth revealed to us by the gospel writer exposes three aspects of God's Trinitarian self-revelation. Three aspects of God's Trinitarian self-revelation. They are the creation word, the incarnate word, and the inscripturated word. The creation word, the incarnate word, and the inscripturated word. Uh, That is to say, God has shown himself in history through these three means. The first, speaking at creation. Speaking at creation. The Father's ultimate plan was for the divine Logos to create all things in the beginning, He's the Son, the Logos, who said, let there be. Let there be. The first divine words from the mouth of God. Second, God speaks in the person and work of Christ. He is the Word made flesh. That's John chapter 1. And third, the subsequent inscripturation of the Word of God, which is given by the Holy Spirit as a self-authenticating revelation of the will and the truth of God's work in the world, in history, and what it is he intends to accomplish through his people. That's what we call the Bible. It's the inscripturated word of God. So we have creation word, we have incarnate word. Jesus is the divine logos. That's uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. In, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And then we have the inscripturated word, what you have in your lap, the Bible. So these three things go hand in hand in establishing truth, giving witness to the truth, 
and being presently authoritative for the cause of truth. And I, I need to add that accordingly with those things in mind, life in God's world consists in dealing with these realities. Life in God's world consists in dealing with these realities. The creation word that gives testimony to God's beautiful handiwork, right? How do you not look at a, sun, a sunset and, and not see beauty and experience beauty? That was sort of Francis Schaeffer's uh, point when he talks about art, art being beautiful objectively and somehow pointing to the truth of God's word. So you have the creation word, you also have the incarnate word, and you have to deal with those realities. You have to deal with it. In other words, no one escapes the self-revelation of God. No one. You're, no one escapes it. One might try to suppress it, but he cannot escape it. So each of us is in God's world, breathing God's air. Each of us is accountable to King Jesus, who is the faithful witness and judge. And the authority of the scriptures in history applies to us, whether we would believe it or not, regardless if you think, oh, the Bible is just another book or what have you. No, the, the, Jesus himself, you know, love him, hate him, but you can't feel ambivalent about him. Love the word of God, follow its authority or reject it. But you can't just say it's just another book. It won't allow you to say such nonsense. As a result of this total and interminable authority of King Jesus, which he secured by his death and resurrection, the truth of God's law, order, must be insisted upon in every area of life. So we have been bought by truth, we have been secured in truth, and we have been commissioned for truth. That is the mission of the church. So let's look at our text. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. It reads this, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The word bear is a word that refers to the testimony of someone in a law court scenario. Uh, witness here refers, it's also connected to a judicial court context. So to be a witness is, what do witnesses do in court? Well, they give evidence, right? They, they demonstrate and report what it is they saw. You know, when, when the guy came in and, and robbed the liquor store did he have a gun in his hand or not well somebody witnessed that presumably so they're giving testimony they're giving witness to it during these judicial proceedings the main prohibition here is a certain kind of testimony god forbids a false accusation he forbids a false accusation what god desires during judicial hearings is for the truth to win the day God desires for truth to win, win the day. And here, God demands that no false accusations which end up leaving, leading to a wrongful prosecution of the defendant. God cares deeply about what happens in, a, in the judicial system, which is the only form of legitimate um, government according to God's law. There is no administrative law and bureaucracies that have three, letter, three letters to their name. Now, in some passages like Deuteronomy 19, those who give false testimony are given the punishment that would have fallen on the one that they were accusing. If you accuse someone of murder and you were the, you know, you're giving false testimony, well, then you would have been put to death. God takes that very seriously in his economy. One might think that to be harsh, of course. Oh, it's just an innocent guy. He's just trying to frame a dude. <laughs> well, no, God, God hates it. <laughs> 
Um, but this, I think, if you sort of treat that haphazardly, haphazardly like it's no big deal, it fails to, to weigh the severity of what lying and false witness actually does to a society. A false witness is a witness at war with his neighbor. Proverbs uh, 25, 18 reads, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. To conceal the truth and perpetuate a lie is to make war against your neighbor. That's how Proverbs sees it. And not only that, you're making war against your neighbor, you're making war against God. Like adultery and theft, the, the false witness is a violent murderer at heart. So when you read this and hear the ninth commandment here, the general warning pertains to the giving of testimony in a legal context. However, we know that from other aspects of the law that it's, it's more than simply just a question about lying. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says it like this, a single witness, and this is what Seth read earlier, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now that's, that's foundational to biblical justice and biblical law. Paul takes that and he applies it in the New Testament to he, he, uh, charges that are brought against an elder in a church. So if you're going to bring that against someone, then you better have two or three witnesses. Jesus references this principle in the great chapter on church discipline, uh, one that we put on coffee mugs, but we actually don't really realize its connection. Remember when Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am among them? Well, that's not just a cute, like, oh, I'm at the store with my buddies, and Jesus is with us walking. This is, he's referencing this, this verse in Deuteronomy 19. He's talking about church discipline. The binding and loosing, the, the bringing, the, whether it's excommunication from someone from the, the body, capital B, who's unrepentant and not willing to, you know, be in God's grace and follow, you know, what it is Scripture tells us. Whatever that is, Jesus is there helping. So in life and in the courts, at least two or three witnesses establish a charge against the defendant. This goes for civil courts and even church courts. If one person gives a witness, the Bible says it's not enough, not in God's economy. Guilt is never to be presumed in God's law, but it's to be established. Guilt is never to be presumed, it's to be established. Furthermore, testimony must be corroborated. If stories don't add up, and perhaps there are completely different views on the matter, um, in the Old Testament, the priests and the judges had to do their due diligence to make sure that uh, guilt was established for someone. Um, that means some people have to be an expert in the law and kind of know what it is they're supposed to do. If they could not establish guilt in a trial, then it was better to let the guilty man go free before the Lord rather than punish an innocent man. So in addition to these elements that are found in God's law, and this is related to the two or three witnesses threshold, one must not allow perjury to be prevalent in the courts. A witness must not perjure himself either for or against the defendant, for in doing so, a, <laughs> he would incur the punishment that I referenced momentarily, uh, moments ago. So the, the legalese that we have in our current court system today not only allows for perjury, 
so long as no one gets caught, right? It not only allows for it, um, it encourages it. For example, let me give you a scenario. One might have to go to court for possessing an illegal drug. Use that in scare quotes here, illegal drug. Let's say that in this situation, the man was completely innocent, even if it's, even if it's an unjust law to begin with, it is the law and what we're working with right now. Let's say the man was actually just hanging out with his friend and his friend is the real guilty party and his friend was really in possession and he didn't know that his friend was in possession. He's just there at the wrong time. Rather than going through the costly court systems, the man has to face the judge and everybody wants a plea deal. So what do they do? Well, if he perjures himself, that is, admits to being guilty, he might only get 90 days in jail instead of going to trial and potentially getting two years in jail. So he's faced with, faced with a decision. Well, I don't want to go to jail for two years. I mean, the, man, the man's caught. If he lies and pleads guilty, he gets a lesser sentence or he risks, rolls the dice, and he has a worse sentence before him. Friends, this is unjust. It's completely unjust behavior in a court system. This sort of coercive perjury goes on every single day because people either don't know or they're not fighting back, and the system itself is corrupt. In our day and age, the courts have been hijacked by administrative law, and common law has become an ancient relic of the past. The law of God requires corroborating evidence because it does not allow for self-incrimination, whether it's coerced or not. So, regarding this commandment, we learn a few things. First, justice must prevail. Justice must prevail. In God's law order, justice matters than, more than any, anything else. God's, um, for God and his word, justice matters more than anyone's particular feelings. A truthful witness matters more than any particular affinity one may have for the accused. And how, how serious does God take this? Well, a false witness who speaks lies is one of the things that God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. In fact, lying out of the seven deadly sins there, lying appears twice. We also know from Revelation 21 that liars are cast into the lake of fire. We know that the devil, the accuser, Hasatan, the, the Satan, is the father of lies, John chapter 8, verse 44. And we also know that he's to be resisted. Justice in all circumstances, the Bible says, must prevail. There is no place for bearing false witness against your neighbor. None at all. To do so is to pollute the judicial process, and that is something God absolutely hates. We also learn the importance of words and communication. Scripture tells us that God is the absolute personality who is intelligent, and not only is he intelligent, he communicates. He is there and he is not silent. Words and communication come to us because of God. When our words are improperly utilized, it's as though we profane the giver of the words. So communication must be stewarded. The things you say about your neighbor, your friends, your family. Communication must be stewarded. And this includes how we speak about our neighbors. Included in this command, forbidding false witness, is how, how we speak of the created order. We are not to speak words in such a way that make an idol out of the creation. That is, we ought not to venerate or worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. 
And that, at the root of all idolatry, the root of all sin, Paul tells us in Romans 1, is the exchanging of the truth about God for a lie, the very thing Adam and Eve had done. So as God's people, our worlds, like our words rather, like our very being, are analogical, meaning we derive certain things like communication from God. Creation word, incarnate word. We believe those. As his image bearers, we receive those words from God. Creation word, incarnate word, inscripturated word. And when we receive that, only then and only after that do we respond to him in truth. Now, (laughs) to make matters more interesting with this particular commandment, the dynamic here isn't just the prohibition of making up a lie. It's the prohibition against spreading false reports. Exodus 23 verse 1 states it this way, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So all speech, I'm talking everything that floods out of your mouth, all speech must be God's speech. It must be honorable. It must be uplifting. And according to Colossians 4, it must give grace to those who hear. If it's not giving grace, then it shouldn't come out. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Thomas Watson, he writes this, quote, We must not only not raise a false report, but not take it up. He that raiseth a slander carries the devil in his tongue. He that receives it carries the devil in his ear. So those are some of the biblical parameters. Let's dig in a little bit more and apply this passage. Trust is the thread that brings relationships together. Trust is the thread that brings relationships together. Trust, if it is to be trust, must be anchored in objective truth. There's a reason why we don't trust people who lie to us, right? Someone lies to you, how do you feel? Betrayed, right? You feel frustrated, especially if there's money involved, you you just got duped, that sort of thing. Lying is manipulation, it is deception, and intentional obfuscation. It is cunning, it is guileful, and it's slanderous. When we lie, no matter how small or white, we fail to align ourselves with the God of truth, which is what Isaiah calls him as well. This sort of behavior, strongly condemned by the law of God, is put in place in order to prevent the cheapening of language. In order to prevent the cheapening of language. Whenever men attempt to cast aside the perceived chains of God's law, they will inevitably start to see language become polluted and diluted. In the world of the communicatory anarchist, I just coined that, by the way, the communicatory anarchist, there are no rules, right? Just say whatever you want. Language is a tool for man's autonomy. So not only do you hate God and want to run run from him, the words you say become totally up to you. Situational ethics. If I want to lie because I feel like it, I'm going to lie because I feel like it. So math, things like science, history, language, and thus culture becomes moldable and subject to change. And that all depends on the whims of the elite. It depends on the whims of those who are there to, to witness it and control it. Words are altered. Think about the word marriage now. Does that mean anything? Words are altered. History is revised. Ah, Jesus was a socialist. He would have probably loved Karl Marx. Right? Um, Meaning changes. Time changes. 
You get to rewrite history. You get to manipulate and control and oppress and so on and forth, so forth. See, to cheapen language through subjectivism is to cheapen man and thus creation. It's a disintegration into the void, as Van Til calls it. It's the eroding of oneself in the image of God stamped upon man. Even Darwin, Darwin himself eventually had to admit that the evolutionary worldview leads to skepticism and distrust. So if we're all just higher primates, Darwin said this, would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? It's lunacy. Language is wrapped up in identity, and if our identity is wrapped up in naturalism, then there is no trust, and there certainly isn't any truth that we should be concerned with. That's the world of autonomy. That's the world of subjectivism. That's the world of an anti-God worldview that is not anchored in truth, that doesn't have any truth to worry about. So in this worldview, truth is what you make it. And I'm reminded, uh, two years ago, I think it was two years ago, I was in D.C., um, again, not because I wanted to be, <laughs> well, I think I did for that time, but you're driving through, and there was a, uh, it was during Pride Month, so my birthday is officially ruined, my birthday month, and uh, so it's June in D.C., and there are signs, and they said, speak your truth, speak your truth, so if it's your truth, just speak it, even if it's not true, but it's your truth. The world we find ourselves in right now is a world choosing to live by lies. At every level, from media to college campuses to the inside of the halls of Congress, lies, obfuscations, and deceit run amok. Narratives are spun in order to advance an agenda. Just pay attention to the Rittenhouse trial right now. Stories are exaggerated in order to further the cause. The world of false witnessing is a world of power and control, the advancement of statist power. Regardless of the world's agenda, we must not give in to the cheapening of language and the destruction of all meaning. Which is to say, when the Holy Spirit grants the new birth, adopting us as sons and daughters of the King, we are given the law of God written on a regenerated heart. So as Christians, truth is something you are brought into, and truth is something that's stamped on the very center of your being. We are truth-tellers because we are truth-breathers. We swim in the truth of the creation word, the incarnate word, the inscripturated word. Moses, Elijah, uh, Nathan, the prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Jesus himself were people of the truth. And they didn't care who heard it. And in this truth, they reproved, they corrected, they admonished, and they proclaimed. You see, there is no shame in truth-telling. Speaking truth to power is part of the Christian mission. It is our responsibility to go back to the teaching and the testimony, another Isaiah-ism. And we don't have to apologize for it either. The world does not care that it tries to control the narrative, perpetuating lies and deception. Why should we care what they think about the objective truth of Scripture and God's authority in God's world. When they say that we are being unloving by rebuking sin and proclaiming the authority of King Jesus, we must remember that truth disrupts false peace. And when false peace is disrupted, men believe it to be an act of hate. Merely saying and suggesting that homosexuality is a sin merely suggesting that taxation is theft, merely suggesting these things is viewed as hatred. 
you are a homophobic person. You are a, you're a hateful person. How could you come to this abortion clinic and speak these lies? By what standard? That's our question. See, we are tempted in today's world to give, over, give ourselves over to false conspiracies. This is not to say that there are no such things as conspiracies. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe in a conspiratorial view of history. Unquestionably, evil men will always try to conspire against Yahweh and against His anointed. That's Psalm 2. It, it will just happen. But we must remember that we should not give ourselves over to speculation. Rather, we must speak the truth to the evil right where it lies, not where we think it might lie. Truth-telling requires responsibility, and responsibility requires self-government and wisdom. We must also resist the temptation to absolutize the concept of free speech. Now, as someone who is very much appreciative of what Gab is doing to restore free speech, we have to be careful to remember that we are, what we are trying to do is restore, restore responsible free speech. You are not, no one's free to yell fire in a crowded room. That makes it a liability. You are free to speak the truth about God, His Word, and His comprehensive authority. But the, the ability to restore responsible free speech presupposes a religiously informed person. You're not going to get an unregenerate person who loves to lie to just suddenly start having responsible free speech. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to have the authority of the Word of God. When we restore the person, we restore the speech. That's the biblical paradigm. We also, just some warnings here, we also have to abstain from absolutizing this commandment to forbid all sorts of lying. People look at this and say, no, 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 the Bible says you're never to lie. You can never, ever, ever lie. That's, the absolute, that's absolutizing it. Well, newsflash, in biblical law, there is such a thing as righteous deception. When an enemy wants to take the truth and do harm, you are obligated to intentionally deceive them and withhold the truth. As I've said, I've been saying this for years, lying to Nazis is seeking first the kingdom of God. Okay? Why no, I'm not hiding any Jews in my basement. Why yes, I'm fully vaccinated. You don't even know what fully means right now, but sure, I've gotten three of every, every one. I'm good. <laughs> I might have a twitch, but I'm fine. <laughs> See, the Hebrew midwives, Daniel himself, the apostles are all examples of righteous deception. Remember, the rule is this. Truth must win out. Justice must always prevail. So if someone is going to abuse the truth to further injustice, then deception is required, and you should not feel bad about it. Our families and churches must be centers for truth. If we lie, we must repent, and we must seek out restitution. We ought to shy away from spinning a story. Um, all of us love, you know, I, I caught a bass this big, <laughs> right? I mean, we all love the exaggeration. We must resist that. Don't spin the story to make, to make you look better than you actually were in that situation. Don't veil your gossip in a, in a, in a cloak of prayer requesting, I'm asking for prayer because so-and-so, she's just nasty, and uh, she's got problems. I don't know if you heard, but <laughs> please pray. <laughs> yeah, you just, that's a train wreck waiting to happen. Proverbs 18, verse 8, and it's repeated in 26, 22, says, 
The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. You might be genuinely concerned about someone in your church or your family or in your circle of friends, but you might also be tempted to gather some delicious morsels for your belly. We must not do so. We might also be tempted to try and cover our intentions by saying things like, well, I'm just venting. I'm just venting. There's nothing wrong with a little ventilation. Well, what does Proverbs 29.11 say about venting? Quote, a fool gives vent to his spirit. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Whatever we do when it comes to discovering the truth, confronting a brother or sister who's in sin, or, you know, maybe it's just something that bothers you and you just need to get over it. Whatever the issue, situation is, maybe it's confronting them, maybe it's just covering it with love. We must not baptize our violation of the ninth commandment in sanctimonious language. To do so is to break the ninth word. And finally, our pursuit of truth in the world and our pursuit of declaring truth is summarized rather succinctly by Rush Dooney. He writes, We must not bear false witness concerning God or man, and we are not to bear false witness concerning Satan by ascribing to him power that belongs only to God. The true witness of the apostles was not a testimony about the powers of Satan, but the triumphant Christ, end quote. See, the kingdom and the power and the glory belongs to Christ in his kingdom, not Satan. So we usually think of bearing false witness by whether it's gossiping or slandering or in those contexts, but actually you're bearing false witness when you believe that Jesus isn't sovereign over this nation and over this world and that somehow Satan has all this authority and, and, and that's what Rushton is getting at. You're still breaking the command. We need to speak truth about God and in God's world as well. The worst sort of false witness is a witness who ascribes sovereignty and authority to Satan and his minions. Yes, there are conspiratorial powers in the world. And yes, they're having a hoot of a time right now. No, they are not fully in control. Christ is on the throne. The ninth commandment is a call to responsibility. It's a call to responsible speech in all affairs of life. It is also a clarion call to acknowledge what Revelation 3.14 says about Jesus. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, which means that he is the lawgiver and judge of all history. He spoke the truth and his enemies were furious. It's sort of like you're going to anger someone, make sure you're angering the right people. Jesus spoke the truth to the enemies of the gospel and they were furious. He spoke truth. He enacted truth. He gave witness to the truth, no matter the cost. Truth for Jesus was not something to be expended depending on the situation. Rather, truth was more important than life itself. The great witness and testimony of the cross of Jesus Christ condemns the evil of man and declares the sovereignty of God. So to put away evil talk and filth that comes from our hearts, the hearts of men, Repentance and faith in the faithful witness and judge must be believed and must be proclaimed. Christ, our witness, is risen. He is indefatigable. The world's lies will be put underneath his feet. All of the lies about this great reset stuff, all, I mean, the centralization, the control, the power, the authority, the money, everything's wrapped up in it. All of the lies that, are, that they're telling the world, that will be put underneath his feet. And in the meantime, 
He calls, he has called us to establish his law order in every area of life, starting with ourselves and starting with what we do with our tongues. Will we build up instead of tear down? Will we speak truth or will we twist it or hide it or conceal it? Will we control it by the grace of God or, we, or will we, like James says, set people on fire with our tongues? That's what confronts us today. Let's pray. Father, we have looked to your word and we are grateful for what we find here. We are grateful for what we find because we know that the world doesn't have the truth. We know that the world is confused by pretty much everything. So we are thankful for your word, the inscripturated word that we have. Father, I pray for strengthened, uh, strengthened mouths tonight, Lord, that we would be convicted, where we would repent, where we need to repent where we would give encouragement, where encouragement is due. Father, help us to control what we say. May your spirit abide in us and be ever-present with us in those moments. So we come now to communion and this agape meal. We ask for your blessing upon our time. In Christ's name, amen.